our teaching, especially in clinical school, I've noticed is very much targeted towards white patients. There was also an uneasiness in learning from a very Eurocentric type of pedagogy. I think as an institution, it definitely can do so much more. Hello, and welcome to Switchboard, Varsity's flagship podcast. My name's Isabel Roberts. And I'm Maggie Fisher. Decolonize the University is a movement to incorporate all cultures and knowledge systems in the curriculum, questioning long-standing biases and assumptions and challenging the colonial legacy that centres whiteness and European thought. It's not so much about removing certain topics, but rather about changing how we study them and adding a more diverse range of options. Whilst the movement first started in Cambridge in 2017, it has since gained particular momentum over the last six months, in part as a result of the increased visibility of the Black Lives Matter movement. Today, we speak to students and staff who are pushing for change, asking what their demands are and what's preventing institutional change. Giselle Babar, one of the BME campaign education officers, speaks to us about what the movement to decolonise the university entails. Decolonising a university is reimagining the university as a space whereby we decentre the structures and the frameworks from the West and from a Eurocentric perspective. What would you say to the argument that the push to change university readiness, which is one strand of decolonising the university, is motivated by white guilt rather than an actual effort to challenge institutional racism? Decolonise, it's kind of become a buzzword for a lot of academics at university or people kind of pushing for change. And it becomes really surface level because pushing for a diverse reading list, although that's really, really important and it's a good start, it's not the only aim because, amazing, we have BME authors on reading lists, but if you're not hiring BME lecturers, if you're not ensuring that the lecturers have received anti-racist training, if you're not ensuring that the university itself is not partaking in organisations that contribute to colonial violence, you need to approach the system as a whole and not appease your students by saying that, you know what, we'll put a couple BME authors on the reading list and that's it. Yeah, it can become a bit almost tokenistic. Do you believe that Cambridge has done enough to challenge its colonial legacies? I think as an institution, it definitely can do so much more. As we've seen with the countless numbers of open letters and the kind of influx of students wanting the university to have a stronger stance on anti-racism, I think they can do so much more. And that really begins with standardising anti-racism training throughout the university, especially for quarters, especially for academics or generally everyone. And standardising that and making sure that reporting is easier for students who have gone through racist incidents. It's ultimately up to them to take that stand and actually be vocal about it because you'll find some faculties, especially sociology, which has the decolonized sociology movement and that's really vital and it's important for a lot of students, but that isn't so much as visible with other faculties. So having that universal nature of the movement is really important and ultimately that's up to the university itself and those who are in positions of power to ensure that decolonized movement is standardized. 
students began to lobby the university, subject working groups arose. One of the first of such groups to arise was a decolonised English working group. We speak to Jonathan Chan, former chair of the group. Part of me was motivated by the fact that I'd met lots of other students doing English who were not white, and they we all kind of shared this similar intimation that, like, you know, not only were our views sometimes seen in, in a different light from the rest of our counterparts during supervisions, but there was also an uneasiness in, in learning of, from a very Eurocentric pedagogy that would privilege whiteness or being European as a kind of arbiter of humanity and rationality. So in some ways, it was motivated by a kind of concern and, and love for the students who felt they were being maligned by the faculty and the curriculum. So that was yeah, why the group was formed. It's been a full three years since the original open letter was re- released and published. And you know, when we as a working group reviewed that open letter and compared it against the changes, of any, that the English faculty may have made, we realized that I think none of the demands were met except for the demand that all the books by post-colonial authors, authors from uh, countries that were formerly colonies of Britain, be moved out from the basement of the English faculty to the main floor. And even then, that was an initiative undertaken more by the librarians, the library staff, rather than the English faculties. As well as campaigning to the faculty, you also hosted reading groups for students. Can you tell me a bit more about this? So I worked very closely with Zach Myers, who was uh, in my year and he was at King's. And the two of us took over the reading group. Uh, We tried to provide a space where people could come to discuss different approaches to their papers that they felt were not being met by the teaching that they were receiving. And we tried to do this in a way that kind of mirrored the syllabus for the English tripod. So for part one, for example, we would do a session on the medieval paper, we do a session on the early modern or renaissance paper, all kind of tailored to give people these tools or initial handles as to how to approach the question of race, of the development of colonial ideologies, imperialistic ideologies within these different timeframes that may have hitherto gone unaddressed uh, under their supervisors. And even when we were all sent home this past Easter, we transitioned to Zoom. And ironically, or maybe not ironically, but because of the accessibility of Zoom, I think we recorded like our highest attendance for the meetings. Like we did a session about what it means to decolonize tragedy. Uh, I think it was quite encouraging. The physical meetings were not as, not as, as big as we might have hoped on many occasions, but I think there was just a sign that there was a kind of renewed or there was an interest that was present. Whilst there has been student support for the decolonised English movement, this has not been consistently reflected in the decisions of the English faculty. Former undergraduate representative for the English faculty, Shamira Lin, tells us more about their response. I found that there was a disparity, a kind of chasm rather, between the working group and the faculty so I just kind of linked them up together and ensured that the faculty were listening. In the first year of trying to do that, that was 2018-2019, there was concern but there was not enough listening going on to be quite frank and I think that sort of picked up when when John and I and Zach were all in our final year of university. That's when we sort of came together and said right we're gonna push them a bit more. 
on my end, what I did was I tried to build relationships around the faculty so that we could all work together to kind of get a mutual understanding. And this kind of culminated in a session where the director of undergraduate studies and the chair of the faculty board said, okay, um, why don't all of you come to this uh, director of studies meeting in January where we prepared a sort of um, 15 minute session on what we thought were the key concerns. And so the faculty have been conscious of these things, but we felt after all of this, more things needed to be done. And as a result, that culminated in this second open letter. And the second open letter has been responded to by the faculty where they have laid down some commitments that they would like to proceed with over the years. And they've talked about what they have done as well. So pretty much that's the chronology of the things the faculty have committed to in the past year. I think it's grown exponentially the past year more than any other time in my history of working with uh, decolonizing any English fact. But they have had a lot to take on board as well with with COVID uh, simultaneously occurring. So it's kind of difficult to push that point forth. But we thought like it shouldn't lose the momentum. This is a constant thing as well. And so we need to keep both in, in sight, you know, rather than losing sight of either thing. What has been the biggest challenge your group has faced, do you think? So I think one of the things that we have uh, continued to reiterate to the faculty is that it's very hard to push for meaningful change because the structure of teaching for English is very, very decentralized. It's the onus of individual colleges to hire supervisors. And because the faculty itself doesn't really have any oversight over this, it can be very, very difficult for them to make sweeping changes, say for, say, like, you know, choosing a set text. So that's actually one of the recent moves that they that they did make. For the Shakespeare paper, they moved away from having Simlin uh, as the set text for the entire year, and they changed it to Antony and Cleopatra, which foregrounds the question of race, and at least, you know, within that context, a kind of civilizational difference or clash. But Save for updating you know, lecture series, it's very, very difficult for the faculty to have any direct control over how supervisions are affected or changed. Because of that decentralization, the experience that someone has of their English degree can vary wildly. So for example, I, I was at Wolfson, and I was very, very fortunate to not ever encounter you know, a kind of dismissiveness or condescension because I was interested in these questions of, of race or empire you know in whatever context as opposed to my friends from other colleges who may have had what could be considered a, a more tr- traditional or conservative approach i had a friend who's uh, she identifies as bme and she was sort of exhausted because she was like i don't want to have it come to a point where just by virtue of me being the only non-white person they always look to me you know with you know they look to me quizzically because i'm always going on about the question of race so I mean, there, there's, there are huge variations and disparities, basically. It's not just students involved in the faculty working groups. Indeed, the Decolonised Sociology campaign has had significant staff involvement. We speak to the chair of the group, Dr Ali Medji. He's also a lecturer on social inequalities at Cambridge. So you chair the Decolonised Sociology working group. What does this group want and is what's it working towards? So... It's basically applying key debates in post-colonial and decolonial theory within the context of sociology. 
So sociology is a really interesting subject because it didn't really exist before colonialism. So it kind of came into formal existence at a time in the kind of late 19th, early 20th century, where over 90% of the world was under colonial occupation or was an empire, colonizing empire itself. So kind of in that context, sociology is interesting because it emerged as a discipline that actually reproduced quite a lot of colonial ways of thinking. And even in that moment of decolonization in the mid 20th century, it still was yet to kind of shake off that logic it had already internalized. So we're kind of working towards understanding the relationship between sociology and colonialism historically, but also looking at the present kind of epistemic methodological practices within sociology and how it continues to reproduce um, those colonial ways of thinking and those colonial power relations. What successes and drawbacks have you had with this group? We've had a lot of success. So, I mean, it has so much support, not just from the faculty, but also from the student level. So undergraduates and graduate students really get involved in it. We've done a lot of kind of curriculum reform. So if you look at our reading lists now and the kind of courses that we have on offer, it's really engaging with those questions I was just describing. And obviously we've had, you know, really successful events, including um, Angela Davis uh, coming to Cambridge a couple of years ago. And also just if you look at our, our sociology seminar series coming up this year, we've also got people coming like, you know, Satnam Verdi, Megan Tinsley and so on. All of these people kind of at the forefront of post-colonial sociology are taking part in our seminar series. So I think that we've got a really lively kind of vibrant academic community engaging with these issues from a variety of different perspectives as well. because It's not a monolithic position. And talking about the support that you've had, are you looking for stronger support from staff since students are obviously only here for three years? For us, it's a slightly different issue to other departments because for us, our previous head of department, Sarah Franklin, was really engaged in these debates. Our new head of the department, Manali Desai, is a post-colonial sociologist. Now, not everyone in our department is a post-colonial sociologist. Not everyone works on post-colonialism, but even those that don't, vaguely at least agree with with its kind of basic premises this kind of like idea that we need to go beyond kind of a bifurcated accounts of sociology that we need to have a historical sensibility when we do our work that we can't just assume that after the decolonization of the world in the 20th century that those same power relations just disappeared i mean so all of these kind of basic foundational premises of decolonial postcolonial thought are vaguely endorsed by the majority of our faculty so it's never been too much of an issue. So I wouldn't say we require more support from the staff in our, in our faculty because we're lucky in, in the respect that most of us agree on the same basic foundational principles. And you have a book coming out soon on decolonizing sociology. Can you tell me what this explores and the kind of theory behind decolonizing sociology? So it cuts back firstly. So it starts off by historicizing sociology. So it's really interesting because even though sociologists we think of as being quite quite critical, like, you know, Karl Marx, for instance, they often reproduce this idea that colonialism was actually doing something quite good. So people like Marx said that colonialism was good because it kind of allowed Asian societies, particularly India, to have some kind of economic development, whereas before that it hadn't really had any social revolution. Now we know from history that that's completely false, but what it shows is that sociology did have this really close relationship with um, empires and colonial ways of thinking and producing knowledge. One of the often reproduced myths was that the colonized people were what we in the West used to be like in the past. 
So for people that kind of wanted to study the transition of societies, and that includes people like Durkheim as well, who is a foundational figure, they wouldn't just consult, you know, textbooks about the history of Western civilization, but they would also just go and do ethnographic studies of colonized people, because that's what we used to be like in the past when we were less civilized. But then I also look at kind of that, you know, enduring logic. So I look at, you know, on the one hand, bifurcation. So how we continually, even in the present day, we continue to study kind of the West outside of its global relations. And we tend to study the West as something that was kind of produced by itself rather than produced through its wider global colonial relations. And then I kind of critique that idea by critiquing this also idea of Orientalism, this idea that those outside of the West are inherently less civilized or... um are often an inferior kind of cultural value system to those in the West. And what was really important to the book was then not just saying what a decolonial sociology is against, but also what it's for. So I kind of talked about some of the foundational debates in decolonial sociology with regards to, you know, how we need a kind of linked, non-bifurcated, non-orientalized account of social reality to study things like the climate crisis, which is disproportionately affecting people in the global South, like populism, which is uh, coming from this kind of post-colonial crisis of Western civilization, and also I think to overcome some of the some of the myths about decolonizing various disciplines, because lots of people think that decolonizing means getting rid of stuff, but it's kind of interesting because decolonizing is the opposite. It's about building links. It's about forging links between geopolitical spaces, between the past and the present and the future. So I even dedicate some time to discussing how you know even people like Marx, Weber, Durkheim, the people that some people say we're throwing in the bin in these decolonizing debates, are actually quite foundational in decolonizing sociology. I mean, Mark, without Marx, you don't have people like Du Bois, you don't have people like you know later Angela Davis and so on. It was also kind of about promoting this view of the world that, as the Zapatistas kind of declared it, you know, the world we want is a world within which many worlds fit. So it's kind of like how we can build that kind of ethos epistemically and sociology to kind of promote dialogues between different geopolitical traditions um, rather than kind of espousing this constant, you know, Western universalism, our theory is the only theory. So it was also kind of, that was kind of the theory underlying it, I guess. That's a really good clarification as well, because I think a lot of people do think of decolonizing as kind of rewriting the whole curriculum and, and getting rid of thinkers that we've been studying for ages. But I guess, as you said, it's maybe still having them but thinking about them in a different way how do we make sure that changes are not surface level or performative but rather are actually kind of structural changes to the curriculum a really good question because i guess what you probably see a lot as a student and what i see as well from from my side is that with these debates that maybe have accelerated at our university in the past five years or so maybe three years maybe even sooner that you'll see kind of like token people added to reading lists. So it'll be like, maybe you'll have a section on Marx if you're doing sociology or politics or history or whatever. And there might be kind of like a reference to Du Bois. There might be a reference to kind of maybe even his daughter, Eleanor Marx, right? Who was already an internationalist. One thing that you've got to avoid is that kind of tokenism. And I think it cuts back to what you were saying just then. On the one hand, it's not a rewriting, but on the other hand, it is a rewriting because the way that you teach these people has to radically shift. You know, Bourdieu, why do we teach him as someone who was talking about the education system in, in France and Paris and whatever? Whereas in reality, most of his theory actually derived from the work he was doing in Algeria, looking specifically at anti-colonialism. Why don't we look at his engagement with Fanon? Another way to kind of challenge it structurally is once again to rethink the way that we want to produce and to, yeah, we want to produce the knowledge and the way that we want to produce the canon itself. 
such that we're not putting figures up on a pedestal, but instead we're kind of looking at the relations they had in a wider global context because we live in a global world and we've lived in a global world since, you know, 15th century at least. But it's not just the humanities that students argue need to be decolonised. This summer saw some medicine students put together an open letter calling for their subject also to be decolonised. One of the writers, Mithiri Sufarsan, tells us about this campaign. In what ways do you think the medicine curriculum still shows signs of colonial legacies and racism and isn't inclusive enough as a course? Our teaching, especially in clinical school, I've noticed is very much targeted towards white patients. So, for example, heart attacks are very much centred around a classic white male presentation, which is like the crushing chest pain, uh, sweating, nausea, and then radiation to the left arm or whatever. While a lot of BAME patients and women as well can often present with different symptoms such as like stomach upset and things like that. And more and more as I've studied medicine, I've realised that the differences in presentations aren't stressed enough. Furthermore, especially in subjects such as dermatology, I think you might have seen there's been this new initiative called Skin Deep by I think a King's College London student. And he like made a book with lots of conditions, but of different on different skin colours. But it's something I've noticed as well in our in our dermatology teaching. All the slides are of on white skin, and obviously rashes and things, especially um, redness, can really differ what it looks like on a white patient on a, and on a black or brown patient. Even in preclinical studies, a lot of the history behind like medicine and like addressing like its colonial past hasn't really been addressed either. So a lot of experiments, for example, have been done on black patients, for example. Even the whole healer cells, um, like taking cells without really permission, that's a massive ethical dilemma and things like that just haven't really been addressed. And at Cambridge, do you think as well as the curriculum, there's also something problematic about who teaches the course and which students are coming to study medicine? I do think that the majority of teaching staff and faculty are like white males and I, I'm i not sure whether it's because Cambridge just attracts like people from that sort of background but yeah it's something I have noticed I think even in pre-clinical school I think we really had one BAME lecturer out of all the different subjects which is I guess a bit upsetting because I guess especially as like a BAME person myself I it's quite nice like looking um, up to people who you see sort of like a similar to you. I guess also within the student population, I think it is fairly diverse, especially in medicine, but I do think there's a real lack of black students. I think there's there's only about like five or six in our year, for example. So there definitely is a gap, especially of specific minorities within the whole BAME category itself, which is why I guess BAME's probably not the best term to use in itself. But yeah, there definitely could be some improvement, I guess, with the whole and recruiting staff and how we encourage access from different communities to Cambridge. And that's something that we did address in the open letter um, and something that the clinical school are looking to work towards as well. So you and other medical students wrote that in June and it was an open letter to combat institutionalised racism in Cambridge Medical School. How did this come about? What was the cause of it? So I think it was a mix of me meshing my friend Esme and we were both sort of meshing, sort of really angry about what was going on. It made me look at medicine in particular and made me realise that there are actually real gaps in 
even the quality of care and the outcomes for BAME patients. So, for example, like black females are five times more likely to die in childbirth than a white female. Looking at COVID, like the amount of um, BAME deaths is much higher. And fair enough, maybe genetics and vitamin D could be part of it. But I do think that probably a difference in care could also contribute to things like that. And it really made me think, what could we do to sort of help and raise awareness within like our own circles? So we started writing a letter and we thought it'd be a great time, especially because people were more aware of it and like educating themselves. What are the main demands in this letter? So I think we summarised it as about three main points. So we wanted to include um, active bias training for both staff and students. We wanted to sort of, I guess, decolonise the curriculum and include more BAME presentations, especially in clinical conditions. And we also wanted a safe reporting service. Having spoken to a lot of my peers, it's really unfortunate to hear that um, quite a few of them have experienced uh, racism in preclinical and clinical and some of the stories I've heard um, have been absolutely shocking and it's even more disheartening that people have felt like they haven't been able to report it or even to have someone to talk to about it like even from my own experiences I've definitely experienced some awkward situations with patients and especially because there's that professional boundary you really don't know what to say or how to deal with the situation and I really think there could be more support for the students And um, what has the response been to this letter, both from students and staff? So the response from the students was um, overwhelming. We got, I think, like two and a half thousand signatures or something, maybe more. So a lot of support. Most of those signatures were medics as well. So before we wrote the open letter, we did sort of like a questionnaire um, to to prove to the clinical school that this was a real problem that was happening in Cambridge. Um, And the questionnaire sort of included if they'd witnessed or experienced any racism in the past, This questionnaire showed that 28.5% of medical students have witnessed racial bias towards patients in a clinical setting. Furthermore, over half of medical students have witnessed or experienced racism either in a professional or educational setting at Cambridge. 65.8% of students feel that they're unable to report incidents and that if they do, 76.2% feel as though they haven't received an appropriate response. Has there been any concrete response So they replied straight away about the letter. Um, But the clinical dean and the Regis professor have been amazing. And we've started this working group and we've had two meetings so far. So in the last meeting, um, we're going to divide into smaller subgroups and really focus on those three main areas of bias training, the curriculum and the reporting service. And we've put out a survey type thing to try and recruit more students to get involved. So we're going to sort of expand and make bigger committees for each thing and hopefully um, it will go somewhere. But I guess it is a real long-term effort because things like this will take a while to sort of change the way people think and sort of challenge your own unconscious bias. Decolonising the university also cannot be reduced to just challenging the curriculum. It also involves looking at the makeup of universities, reviewing hiring and promotion practices to correct the current biases that discriminate against BAME academics, and addressing the legacies of certain institutions and practices. This is reflected in the decision to create the two-year University of Cambridge Advisory Group on the Legacy of Enslavement. Its final report is scheduled to be released in 2022 and will recommend specific ways for the university to acknowledge publicly its historical links to enslavement and to address its intergenerational impact, considering appropriate forms of reparative justice. 
However, the movement to decolonise a university is bigger than Cambridge. Similar movements have emerged at many universities, including St Andrews, SOAS and Anglia Ruskin. Indeed, the movement is even bigger than universities themselves, but it's about the broader British education system too. Esme Jakimi Pearson and Nell Bevan founded the Impact of a Mission Survey, which assesses the diversity of the British school curriculum. They have subsequently campaigned for national educational reform. Earlier this year, in June, you released a survey to gather data on the true state of Britain's curriculum. What was the kind of response to the survey? Did you get a lot of participation? And what did the survey show? We were so pleasantly and happily shocked by the amount of people who responded. And at the moment, we're sitting at just over 56,000 responses. So the main thing we got people to answer was take off if you can remember being taught these topics. And I think both of us knew that this was going to be a problem and just didn't realise how much it was proving us correct. As it stands, 86% of the people who responded learnt about the Tudors, 72% learnt about the Battle of Hastings, 72% learnt about the Great Fire of London, but then 7.9% of people who responded learnt about the colonisation of Africa, 9.9% learnt about the role of, of slavery in the British Industrial Revolution, 5.4% did modern slavery. It's interesting to see some of these things being taken so much more over topics that are so much more foundational to British society today. So you then encouraged individuals after you got the results of your survey to write to their schools and their MPs to call for educational reform. And you also organised a petition calling for the issue to be discussed in Parliament. And that petition got over 250,000 signatures. And so the government responded. So can you tell me about that response? The response was literally a bit of a slap in the face. So the first kind of major response we got was for the petition because it got over 10,000 signatures. So it earns a response from a government official. And we got this, what was essentially a copy and paste from their curriculum website. See, here are the specific places it is offered in and schools have the opportunity to teach it. And so we actually went back to them and said, this is unacceptable. You can't do something like this when so many people have responded to the petition. The petitions committee got the people who responded to the petition to reevaluate their response. And the reevaluation of it was changing one sentence to be, we offer this at key stage three. For this reason, we do not think this is a problem that needs to be addressed in the parliament. And I was like, oh my God, quarter of a million people think this is an issue and you're disregarding it completely. It's completely insane. On a base level, everybody in the government works for the citizens of this country, and they obviously are showing such a disregard for what the actual function of their job is. They are just very, very invested in keeping the structures of white supremacy that benefit them and everybody they know and their families in place. I'm not surprised at the response, but that doesn't mean that it isn't disappointing and upsetting. And as you say on your website, we do have parts of our education system that we say we need to teach uh, children about quite rightly, like the Holocaust, for example. Um, in Germany they're told they've got to learn about it. Really, why is it not true, therefore, that in countries like Britain we need to learn about our responsibility, not only in the past, but also today, how we're still benefiting from those same systems? All I would say is that this is a glimpse into what racism is like and what racism does, is that you try and try and try and you say, please treat me like a human being, give me the same opportunities that you give everybody else and don't write me off when you see me for biased reasons. And they say, mm, no, don't think I will. Just like they won't do the unconscious bias training. And part of the reason that they don't feel like they need to sort of make reparations or educate people on the wrongs of the past the people in Germany have, because rightfully in their eyes, the Holocaust was a tragic, horrific event. And that's how the rest of the world sees it. The rest of the world sees the British Empire as a tragic, horrible event. The British people, they don't see it like that. 
because I mean if you just think about who we're asking to take us seriously it's the House of Lords and the House of Commons and at the end of the day those are colonial structures of power that serve the British Empire as well and so asking for an acknowledgement of the horrors of the British Empire from a structure that came out of the British Empire directly benefited from the British Empire it's almost I mean I don't want to sort of give up hope but I'm beginning to think that maybe it's an impossible task do you think one of the problems you've spoken about with the government's kind of tendency to say we have modules which allow students to explore this it's not our fault if teachers aren't choosing to teach that and I think that same kind of problem there can be seen across universities, for example, where courses will offer you the chance to explore race. And it's not the department's problem if your supervisor isn't going to choose those topics. So do you think there's a real problem with a lack of clarity on who's actually responsible for failings in the education system when it comes to race? Yes, I think... Okay, there are a few different angles to this problem. So the first one is that it is, at the end of the day, the governmental responsibility to make sure that when the country has committed historical atrocities, that the people in this country learn about those atrocities. And not even just that, it's that people in this country should know about where they came from, why they're here, and what that means going forward into the future. And then there's the idea that teachers obviously have a moral obligation as educators of the next generation to make sure that they are telling students the truth and not omitting anything. And then I think the final aspect to this is that, for example, universities are colonial institutions. Like, they are white spaces. They are white supremacist spaces at the end of the day. And I think it is the insidious whiteness that just pervades everything. So when you think of English literature or British history, the slave trade was just as much a part of our history as Jane Austen was, if not more. And it's just this idea that we all have to know the plot of Pride and Prejudice, but we don't know why structural inequalities are structural and how that is affecting us to this day. So I think in terms of who's responsible, it definitely is a trickle down from the government. But I think that, you know, you're kidding yourself if you don't think that every day as a person living in this country, you personally couldn't be doing more. There are organisations like the Black Curriculum that have resources available on their website. So I do believe that if you want to make the change, you can make the change. It's not going to be easy and it's not going to be comfortable. And just because you can't comfortably start thinking about slavery doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. Are you hopeful for the future? Okay, I can go first because I think uh, me, me and Shamir maybe have slightly different ways of thinking about it. I think number one, and this is kind of following off uh, the work of these two American scholars, Tuckin and Yang, who wrote an article called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. Decolonization in and of itself, you take it literally, means the returning of land to dispossessed peoples. To use it metaphorically in the intellectual sense, it kind of means ceding less space intellectually, academically. So, you know, to, the, to that extent, we can never fully decolonize if we take it literally. I mean, you know, we can't spontaneously undo the fact that we're all engaging in scholarship in English, for example. And I think the other thing that I've kind of noticed is that there is an uptick in terms of the incorporation of the language of decoloniality in scholarship. And, you know, there's a kind of renewed, almost moral impetus behind it because of the murder of George Floyd in the U.S. So I, I'm sometimes wary about the limitations of the language. And, you know, I think to decolonize is, for me, you know, it's really about recentering. So, you know, coming up with a critical approach that says, okay, we're not going to place Europe or the global north at the center. We're not going to accord all manner of cultural authority to Europe or the global north. But 
it also doesn't mean, let's say, becoming Afrocentric or Sinocentric. I mean, uh, you know, people can disagree, but to me, I don't think any kind of ethnocentrism is helpful. But in terms of expanding the boundaries of critical inquiry within the English faculty, in terms of giving students opportunities to explore a broader range of topics from a broader range of geographical and cultural contexts, I think I would say that I'm hopeful that change can be made. But, you know, knowing Cambridge and knowing our faculty, it will come about at a glacial pace. Uh, I think for me, after the um, lived reality of dealing with this every time, it will sound contradictory, but I'm quite wary of using my scholarly understanding of decolonization to feed my lift feelings on it. That's because I've gone through the kind of pain of trying to do this a lot, having to interact with the people who, who do it every time, you know, who, who are like hurting you every time. I think to say this publicly is also quite scary, but I do not hold the same hope for decolonizing in that. I agree with John. I think, yes, uh, you can't fully decolonize based on that scholarly understanding and also what it truly actually means. But I think, will things improve in 50 years? Yeah, of course, they're going to be slightly better. But is slightly better enough? I don't think it is. And so for me, that's not enough. And I do not see that as a kind of hope to hold on to. Unless there are active changes being made, like you know, the structural rehiring and things like that. I, I hesitate to say that I hold the same kind of positivity and optimism about it. I really hope that medicine and the way it's taught is changed for the better in terms of making sure we include all people, not just, even not just like BAME people, all categories of people that are marginalised, because they're the people that are the most vulnerable. And I really feel like the teaching should be geared to protect our most vulnerable patients. And we really need to make sure that as future doctors that we challenge our own innate biases and really take a look at how we're treating patients and making sure that we're giving the utmost care to everyone. I would say that I am hopeful, but more in terms of the fact that I know that students are very passionate and they know how important anti-racism is. But in terms of the university as a whole, there needs to be a continued narrative, the attention and the focus on anti-racism, which rightfully became important because of the protests. The university has a priority to keep that momentum going and ensure that actual tangible material change is made because we've seen statements, we've seen speeches, but ultimately we need to see tangible change. It's clear that due to the efforts of many students and some staff, there have been significant gains with regards to decolonising Cambridge. However, these gains have not been consistent across subjects due to the autonomy of faculties and college supervisors. It's thus time for those with centralised authority to take responsibility and lead the way in shaping the curriculum to adequately explore colonialism and its long-term impacts. And this is true both with regards to university and national school curriculums. Thank you for listening. You can read more on this topic at varsity.co.uk. Thank you to our contributors, Decolonised Sociology Chair Ali Megji, Medic Mathiri Sufarsan, Jonathan Chan and Shamira Lin from Decolonised English, BME Campaign Education Officer Giselle Babar, and Esme Chikini Pearson and Nell Bevan. Thanks also to our production team, Tilly Head, Matthew Cavallini, Georgia Goble, Matthew Jeffries, Cameron White, Alex Oxford, Thea Melton, Sorrel Fenelon and Rachel Mullaney. We'll be back next week.
subscribe to our podcast or visit our Facebook page where you can leave any thoughts.